All right, Isaiah chapter 58. What does God require of you and me? And this isn't really a trick question. If someone came to you and said, what does God require of me? (laughs) What does God require of you? What would you say? And there are a few different verses you could use in the Bible, but one of them is Matthew 22, verses 37 and 39. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right? And there's this incredible harmony or relationship between loving God and loving your neighbor. If you love God, you will love your neighbor. And if you truly love your neighbor, it's because you love God. <laughs> right? They, they work together. They go together. You can't separate them. And this is the problem. When we hear what God requires, we need to understand that it is impossible for us to do what God requires. What God requires is impossible for any of us to do on our own. We just sang it in that song. I don't remember the exact line. But give me the strength to do what God commands, right? Because my only hope is you. Because <laughs> our hearts are sick. We are dead. We do not love God. And we do not love other people. That's the problem we are in. And there are a few different ways that we respond to this dilemma, isn't there? One of them is that we can be crushed. We looked at this last week, didn't we? We can be crushed by the reality of our sinfulness. We can be crushed by the reality of the fact that we cannot please God. That we are, in fact, enemies of God, rebels of God, and the only hope is for us to bow on our knees and to submit to God and to cry out to God that he might save us from our sins and deliver us and give us life, right? Because that's what it means to be saved, is to have life. And God will save us. He will transform us. And now, I just want us to understand that that process is not easy, The process, as we will see today, the process of being transformed into the image of Christ, of reflecting his glorious image, is a painful process at times. It will be our whole lives, but it's a good process. So that's the first path we can take. The other path we can take is to take the easy path and simply rebel against God, right? We can just rebel against God, do our own thing, have no thought to who God is, but just do our own flagrant sinning in light of who God is. But there's one more option that we're going to look at today. And this option is to put on the appearance of spirituality. To have no change in our inward being, but to put on an outward appearance of spirituality. To make ourselves look like the real thing when there is no reality within us. It's to fail to have the inward essence, but try to look the part on the outside. And one way of explaining what our purpose in doing this is, is it's kind of like, I don't know if if they still do this today, but they used to try to hack into the video games, right? 
Like, for instance, if you wanted a thousand lives, you would take the video game and you would hack into it and you'd get a thousand lives. <laughs> right? So it's kind of like trying to get the blessings of God by circumventing God, right? We try to get the blessings of God. We try to get people's approval. We try to look like the real deal without going through God, without having a heart change. We try to cheat the system. Another way of saying this is, as someone else explained it, it's kind of like a, a house, right, that is on a sinkhole, all right? You might have the most beautiful, most glorious, nicest house. It might be the, the, the biggest, most expensive, nice-looking house on the block, but if it's on a sinkhole, it's condemned, right? And so, kind of like hacking the system, trying to get the blessings of God, while at the same time having a condemned house that might look really good on the outside, but nothing good on the inside. So kind of like two pictures to try to figure out there. <laughs> and so in this passage, God is addressing a people who thought they were doing what God required of them because they had a lot of outward spiritual devotion that was devoid, devoid of inward reality. They thought they were A-plus Christians. They thought they were the apple of God's eye. They thought they were at least better than other people. But God is exposing that what they really are are hackers. They're not the real thing. They're condemned houses. They are fakery. They're not reality. They're, in a sense, hypocritical religious people. They look good on the outside, but on the inside, they are condemned. And so what we see is hacking the system does not work with God. God sees through us, and God knows what is going on. We can't fool God. We can never fool God. And so this rebuke today is something that we need to hear. Sometimes God's word is hard to hear. <laughs> And I would say if there's anything that we need to hear, if there's anything that's close to home, if there's anything that I need to hear, this is the temptation that we have. We are tempted to become people like we see here in this passage. So we need to have our ears open and we need to be willing to be hurt a little because sometimes healing does not come apart from being hurt. The scalpel might hurt, but the healing is glorious. So open up your ears and listen to what God has to say. So God begins by instructing his servant exactly how to address the problem that the people have to the people. So God is saying, this is how I want you to express their problem to them. And so God tells his servant to communicate the message in a manner that is, you might say, you might summarize verse 1 there as being bold and clear, right? Literally, he is to shout these words with the full throat, <laughs> the full throat. That means loudly and clearly so that everyone can understand what he's saying. And the way he illustrates this is with a trumpet, a trumpet, <laughs> And the specific trumpet they're referring to is the shofar. And the shofar was blown as a warning because God was near or to gather the people and tell them, stop doing what you're doing. Gather together. God has something to say to you. 
It's time to hear what God has to say. So this was a blasting trumpet that would get everyone's attention, that would often be fearful in the reality that God was going to say something. And you better listen. It was a piercing blast. And so what, what I want us to hear from this is that what God has to say is something that is serious. This is serious. And the way he's saying this indicates to us the, the very means through which the message is communicated indicates the seriousness of the message. And so this is a great reminder that correct speaking of God's word doesn't only have to do with getting the words right. It also has to do with speaking those words in the right manner. You see, if Isaiah were to speak these words gently and quietly and privately, even if he said the right, right words, he'd be saying it wrongly. He'd be saying it untruthfully because that's not the way God told him to speak it. So the manner and the words themselves are absolutely essential if we're to get the word of God right. So what is the subject matter that he is to deliver this way? And the answer is, their sin. Notice the words here. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob, their sins. He is to rebuke them boldly and clearly before their faces. Well, this is not really a fun thing to do, is it? This is what makes people second-guess the job they have when they become pastors. <laughs> Why would God need to tell Isaiah, who's a seasoned minister, to speak this way? And perhaps the answer is because he would be tempted to hold back rather than boldly declare people's sins to them. Right? This is hard to speak. The last thing people want to hear is their sins boldly trumpeted before them. And the reason is, why would this be hard to speak? Because we don't like losing friends. We want people to like us. So here the temptation is to hold back. So he says, don't hold back. Don't hold back. Because the temptation would be to hold back. Maybe to say it a little softer. Maybe to make it a little less clear, but in some way to hold back. And it's especially hard when people don't think they have a problem. <laughs> and isn't that the case? Isn't that true? When we don't think we have a problem, it is doubly hard to hear anyone expose our sins to us. Now, even if we understand that it's good, even if we come to church, right, and we understand it is good for my sins to be exposed, I need my sins to be exposed. Isn't it still hard to hear it? Isn't it still hard to accept it? How much more so if you have no interest in hearing your sins exposed? So in general, proclaiming people's sins is a way not to build up a congregation. <laughs> if you want to have more people in general, you don't expose their sin. And you know exactly what I'm saying here. Isn't it hard to speak the gospel to people when you 
are thinking, I might lose a friend. <laughs> I might lose a friend. Isn't it hard? So in a sense, we all know what I'm talking about. This is a challenge for every one of us. But there's another reason why God calls Isaiah to speak this way. Because this is the way God brings conviction of sin. This is the way he brings repentance. And this is the way God brings healing. And so the manner of the message, the boldness, the clarity, the passion of the message, along with the truthfulness of the message, the words, are absolutely essential if there is to be a conviction of sin and a people who repent and find healing. This is a good message, and it's absolutely essential if the people of God are to walk a healthy, God-fearing life before God. So don't hold back. Speak the truth. You see, the gospel message must always afflict it must always hurt before it can heal and before it can bring salvation. If there is no reproof, then there is no salvation. Believers as well, we are often, it is often necessary for us to be hurt, isn't it? It's often necessary for us to be, in a sense, even crushed. The ideas and thoughts of ourselves that we had blown up and, and puffed up and, and, and thought that we were pretty good, it is often good for God to put that scalpel to us and to hurt us for our eternal well-being and for our health. 2 Timothy 4 verse 1 through 2 says, this is exactly the responsibility of a minister of God. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Notice those two first words, reprove and rebuke. You are not a faithful minister of God if you don't reprove and rebuke. With patience and long and teaching. This means... That if any of us are ever to be faithful to the gospel message, if any of us ever are to be faithful ministers of God, if we want to live faithful lives, not only must we understand the gospel, right, the message, that's absolutely essential we understand the gospel message, but we must also, and this is so important that we understand this, we must also fear God more than we fear men. The greatest danger, perhaps, in us ministering for God is fearing man more than God. We must understand the reality of the God that we are speaking in behalf of. We must have a robust understanding of this God that we are serving. And we must hold him before our eyes daily and be reminded of the reality of the God whom we are proclaiming. Only in that way will be faithful ministers of God. Did you know, so contrary to the, the reality of the world we live in, that such rebuking is not merely the job of a minister who preaches the gospel from the pulpit? You need to understand this, because this is so contrary to the world we live in, who thinks this is evil and wicked to do. But God has called each and every one of us 
to lovingly, caringly rebuke each other. We are to rebuke each other and exhort and encourage one another. That is to be what we are to be doing and be about doing. Do that for me, and I need to do that for you. That's the only way we will be a healthy, faithful people of God. So Isaiah's commission here is not just his commission, but all of our commission. This is what we are to be about. We need to ask ourselves, when was the last time we lovingly and caringly rebuked a brother or sister? And when was the last time we encouraged a brother or sister? Hopefully we are doing both. So what type of person do you think God would give a rebuke like this to? Well, you would think rebellious, unbelieving wretches, uh, like my neighbor, right? Or your neighbor? Those in the government, maybe? Well, not the people that we look at and see in this passage, right? (laughs) He wouldn't be saying this to the people that we see in this passage. I mean, look at what it says about them. They are super devoted to God. In verse 2 it says, Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgment. They delight to draw near to God. Notice what God is saying that these people are like. They have a sort of delight in approaching God. They delight in going to church. No one has to force them to go to church. Does this surprise you? I mean, if this doesn't surprise you, then you need to wake up. (laughs) You're still sleeping, because this surprises me. When I read this, this surprises me. I wake up, I think, what in the world is he talking about? How could he be rebuking these people? And there's a hint here at what the problem is, isn't there? Just a little hint. Did you see it? The words, as if. As if. As if they were a nation that did righteousness. As if they did not forsake the judgments of their God. Their actions appear as if they were righteous. Their actions appear as if they were the real thing inside of them. It's as if they were real and legitimate. They are as if they were not a facade, right? The people expressed their confusion in verse 3 with a question to God. They expected for God to respond to their religious activities, right? Their fasting, particularly, with approval. But God does not respond to their devotion with approval at all. So they question God. They say, why aren't you blessing us? Right? In verse 3. We fasted, and you see it not. Why? We've humbled ourselves, but you don't even acknowledge it. You don't hear our prayers. And so what it says here is the people express their devotion to God through fasting and humbling. Right? And so the fasting is usually associated with not eating. Right? It's probably the case here. And it was not uncommon for the people of God when they were in trouble to fast and to um, do the outward actions of humbling themselves. Right? Um, when they went through difficulty to cry out to God in some way, shape, or form. And we have to remember that God is not against fasting, is he? In fact, God prescribed fasting on the Day of Atonement. 
It was his prescription. Fasting is not bad. God's not against it. In fact, uh, fasting is often associated with repentance and with prayer. And those are good things. Repentance and prayer are absolutely necessary for a healthy spiritual walk with God. In times of difficulty, that's often what they would do, as I mentioned already. And that's a good thing. And the fasting fasting that God wants his people to do in in one sense and one way of explaining it is we come to our with our with our, our our stomachs and our hands empty, right? We have nothing in ourselves to bring to God, and we need him. We are hungering and thirsting for God. Everything we have in, is in him, and so we come to him declaring that God is everything I need, that nothing in this world can satisfy, and we have nothing to bring to him. That's kind of what fasting is, isn't it? Just declaring that he is sufficient, that he's everything we need. We have nothing to bring to him. So because of this, because of their fasting, I should say, because of their their devotion to God, when they came to God, and uh, God did not seem to acknowledge their their fasting and their devotion, they are confused. And in fact, they're a little bit angry. (laughs) They're a little bit angry, wondering, why is God not blessing us? Uh, Isn't it unjust for God not to notice his people when they are so devoted to him? This is not just a question. This is anger. And you can begin to see a little more of the glimpse of the problem that's going on here in their motivation behind their fasting and the way they complain to God. You see, their fasting, their devotion to God is done in a sense that they expect for God to respond. It's it's almost a demand, almost a manipulation of God that he has to respond their way, that he has to give in to what they're doing. It's very similar to idolatry, isn't it? Where we try to manipulate God to give us something for we give to him. Almost like earning a wage. Almost like earning something from God. We did this and therefore God owes us this. Right? It's, it's more of the motivation than even the seeking of a reward, is it? It's why they're seeking it. Maybe God must give us a, a bumper crop. <laughs> You know, a military victory, a mound of gold. But they're pressuring God into giving them what they require. So when God refused, the people became offended. When God didn't hear what they were doing, they became offended. Sounds like Cain and Abel, doesn't it? And he killed his brother because God didn't listen to him. And so they say, God is defective. God has failed to do his part. Do you ever meet someone who became disillusioned with God because they didn't respond the way they expected them to? Like they did something for God and God didn't respond, so they say, I'm not following God anymore. <laughs> no, that's, that's just unbelief, isn't it? There's nothing of devotion in that. So God explains what is wrong with their fasting in verses 3 through 5. He explains why he's not pleased with them. And we can't go through the verses But um, I will summarize what God says is wrong with their fasting. He says they are seeking him. They're devoted merely to do their own pleasure. I should say while they're devoted, while they're fasting, they are seeking their own pleasure. That's what I should say. That's a better way of saying it. They have a selfish agenda while they are fasting. (laughs) They're oppressing their workers while they are fasting. Apparently, because they have an agenda, right? And their agenda requires that they put extra work on their laborers. And so they use them to get 
their agenda accomplished and abuse them because they can. They were treating others harmfully. And in a sense, they were using them for their own interest and their own agenda. So this is what God says is wrong with what they're doing. And so we ask, what is the point here? What are we to understand about what God is saying here? And one way of saying this is that God does not find any pleasure in religious activity, such as fasting, that leads to treating others wrongly or unlovingly. In other words, God does not approve of religious devotion, no matter how sacrificial it might appear outwardly, that is not accompanied with a failure, with, that is accompanied with a failure to care for people and rather uses them for your own gain. Pastor Steve Whitmer said it this way, God is not interested in religious commitment divorced from whole life commitment to him expressed in tan- tangible love for others. Now this is not removed from us at all. This is so close to home. How often have we have we gone to church, done our church attendance, or maybe even were baptized, or maybe we prayed a prayer and thought that that action in itself was of some value, but it had no accompanying change and transformation in our lives. And God says here that such religious activity is worthless. Um, but, but God, you know, it's, it's, for instance, it's kind of like going to church and then on your way home berating your wife and your kids and thinking that somehow God is pleased with your church going. We think that God is pleased with a prayer of salvation that is not accompanied by a life that is tra- being transformed into a loving person, a person that loves God and loves others. And that is just not true. Put it simply, religious devotion that is divorced from loving others is fake, and it's not real. This is what James 2, verse 14 through 16 says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's not saying our works save us. It's saying that there is a fruit that accompanies genuine salvation. There is an indication that there is a genuine salvation that accompanies the real thing. 1 John 4 verse 20 says this, If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. He doesn't love God. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Instead, what often happens, or what always happens, I should say, when there is no real transformation in our hearts, and we are going about with devotion outwardly in our lives, really what that devotion is doing is building up our ego. We are using our devotion as a platform to to lift ourselves up, to exalt ourselves, to magnify ourselves. And that's what always, always happens 
when it doesn't come from a transformed heart. And sometimes, as Christians, we can do the same thing, and we need to repent of that, don't we? So God sarcastically dismisses their false devotion with a series of questions about what they are actually doing in practicing their fasting. Is it what I really chose for you? Is this the fasting that I really chose for you? And the answer is obviously, it is not at all what God requires. It's kind of like your parents asking, is this how I taught you to clean up your room? Right? After you shoved all your stuff into the closet and underneath your bed, and you are saying, I cleaned up my room, mom and dad, and your mom or dad says, is this how I taught you to clean up your room? The answer is obviously not. (laughs) You're not doing it right. God is not pleased with it. So God, in his grace and in his kindness, tells them not only what they're doing wrong, but also what they should be doing. God instructs them about the right thing that they should be doing. What is the right fruit of a changed heart? What is the thing they should be doing? What does authentic religion look like? And by the way, religion is not a bad word. Sometimes we, in, in our generation, we've, um, works, salvation is a bad word, <laughs> in the sense that's not right, but religion is actually used in the Bible in a good way. In James 1 verse 28, but God shows us what authentic and true religion looks like. In verses 6, through 7, and then verse 9 through 10. So I'm going to summarize once again what God requires, what it looks like to have true religion, true devotion, heart devotion. First of all, it says the works, uh, such fasting works to free the oppressed. God says the fasting that I approve of is a fasting that works to free the oppressed. Secondly, The fasting that he approves of is the fasting that sacrifices to provide for the needy. That gives of yourself. And and that is really the emphasis here. It's not just giving food. It's giving of yourself. It's, It's pouring your life out in care for them. It's having a deep down um, pain, joining their circumstances in a sense, of those who are oppressed and those who are needy. In other words, the type of fasting that God requires is fasting that is accompanied with a deep down concern for the oppressed, the disadvantaged, and the impoverished. So what God requires is a heart that really loves people. Not just just someone who doesn't do anything. God is not impressed with someone who just doesn't do bad things to people. What God calls for are People who do sacrificial, loving things for those who are needy and oppressed and have nothing. It is a heart that sacrifices and gives to those who are in need that costs greatly of ourselves. A heart that feels the needs of those around us and reaches out to them. I think of Jesus when you think of someone who did this perfectly. I read James 1, verse 27, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So a question we come to is, is God referring merely to 
social justice here, to caring for physical needs, or is he referring merely to bringing the gospel to people? The gospel of salvation. What is God referring to here? Which one is he talking about here? And no one can legitimately deny that this passage, in this passage, God is speaking of caring for real physical needs. The injustice that we see around us, around us, the social needs that we see around us, such as saving the lives of unborn babies. What an incredible, is there a greater injustice that we can intervene and save the lives of unborn babies? What, and the church should be the first spearheading that need. We're feeding those who are physically hungry and clothing the naked that are around us. If you don't care about these things, you should. And you should check your heart and ask yourself, do I have the real things if you don't care about these things? But at the same time, I don't think any of us would ever deny, hopefully we wouldn't, that the greatest bond, the greatest yoke, the greatest oppression is our sin. Who would ever deny that? There is no greater yoke, no greater slavery, no greater oppression that anyone can ever be under than their sin. And what do people need more than to be fed the gospel of Jesus Christ? We need to hear the word of God. And we are not ultimately doing people any good if we do not give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is their greatest need and will always be their greatest need. In other words, the Bible doesn't call us to choose between one and the other, does it? We should be both concerned for their spiritual needs primarily, but also for their physical needs. It's not either or, it's both and. You see, we should be the most beneficial for our society, shouldn't we? Our society should be better off because we're here, and I think they are. And this has been the case throughout history. Think of William Wilberforce, right? And we should also be concerned, most importantly, that people hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our great goal. So God moves on. And he explains the incredible blessings for all who have this type of heart. <laughs> who have the transformed heart. Who have the heart that truly loves, that is transformed by the gospel. And listen to the benevolent God that we have. The God who loves to pour out his blessings. He is certainly not withholding from his people. God is pouring out his blessings. Verses 8 through 9 and 11 through 12. And once again, I'll summarize these things. It says here that God promises that he will give you understanding and guidance. The light will, will all of a sudden turn on. <laughs> the light bulb will turn on. He'll give you understanding in the midst of confusion. He will make known to you his will and the goodness of it. Do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? He will heal you, not necessarily physically, but he will heal you spiritually. And one day you will be healed physically. He will protect you. He will be your rear guard. Even death will be your protection and salvation. Your righteousness will go before you. 
He will say when you cry out to him, here I am. (laughs) You know, God was not hearing them when they were fasting, was he? But God says, in this case, I will be almost like a servant comes to their master. Crazy as that sounds. He will say, here I am. I am here. He will strengthen and provide for you. He will make your bones strong. He will water your garden. He will bless you, bless others through you and will build his kingdom through you. Amazing. In other words, water will stream out of you and overflowing to those around you. So here's my question. What keeps us from giving sacrificially of ourselves? What holds us back from being generous and gracious and giving people? Well, I think the answer is that we, are, we fear having nothing left. We fear that we won't have anything left over. We fear if we give ourselves to others and build relationships with others that we will be lost ourselves. And so we don't give. But God promises here to bless with abundance those who give sacrificially. Isn't this a great paradox of scripture? It is more blessed to give than to receive. And this world says the otherwise, doesn't it? So God says, yes, seek your reward, but with the right motivation. God says for us to seek our rewards. He says it throughout the Bible, but with the right motivation. Not as if we were earning something, but more like a physician tells you to do a certain thing, right? The physician, we trust him, we believe in him, and so we take the prescription that he says, and we do what he tells us to do, because that is true healing, and that is believing and trusting our physician. All right, so we're going to close by asking ourselves, how do we do this? And the answer is, the only way to do this is through recognizing we can't do this. This is impossible for us to do. We need to be crushed by God. We need a changed heart. We need to come to God and confess our sins and ask him to save us from our sins. We need to ask God to give us a new heart. This comes through repentance and faith. And there's nothing harder than repenting. There's nothing harder than asking God to change us. And as believers, we need to take this seriously because maybe God wants to take the scalpel, scalpel to our lives and show to us, show us that we are living our lives with the majority of us being a false spirituality. That there's very little reality within us. We need to repent and turn to God. I think every one of us needs to examine our hearts. I need to examine my heart. I find myself not loving as I should. I find myself needing a lot of growth to do in my loving of other people. And so ask God, where do I need to grow? Where do I need to change? Ask God to take the scalpel to your life and to change your heart. And to make you into a sacrificial person, a loving person. That is the fruit of the gospel. Ask God to make you into a bold and courageous proclaimer of the good news of the gospel. Are you proclaiming the gospel to those around you? Are you caring for the needs of those around you? Oh, that's a question each one of us needs to ask. And I know I need God to do a lot of work in my life. Let's pray. God, I pray that you'd bring healing to our lives. I pray that you'd change us and make us into your image. God, this is not a message 
that is a bummer. (laughs) This is not a message that is intended to destroy us, Lord. This is a message that is intended to heal us. But Lord, we must first be destroyed if we are ever to be healed. And so God, I pray that you would crush us. I pray that you would expose us. I pray that you'd expose the, the failure of our hearts to love. I pray that you'd expose where we have tried to live our lives on our own strength and our own power and our own might. We have tried to build up um, hypocrisy in our lives as if somehow we can fool you. God, I pray that you would tear down our our false walls that we've created. I pray that you'd expose the, the wickedness of our hearts and I pray that you'd bring healing to us. God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your great salvation that you have brought to us through Jesus Christ. And Lord, I thank you that you are abundantly powerful to heal. I thank you for the promises that are mind-blowing. And I pray that we would run to you this week. And I pray that we would boldly, Lord, help those who are in need. We would sacrifice what we have, even at great cost to ourselves. And that we would proclaim the gospel, even if it means losing our friends for your kingdom and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.